I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Susan Moran. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, January 12th, 2016. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Dark matter makes up more than 80% of the mass of the universe, but does not radiate light. Astronomers now have found a new way to detect and even map the presence of dark matter using a new technique called galactoseismology. Just as seismologists analyze earthquake waves to infer properties about the Earth's interior, researchers at the Rochester Institute of Technology used waves in our Milky Way galaxy's disk to map its interior structure and mass. The scientists postulate that these waves are the result of a brushing collision by a smaller galaxy millions of years ago, much like the waves created by a pebble thrown into a pond. And the size and shape of those galactic waves are sculpted by dark matter. So, the astronomers searched for other evidence of that collision, what you might call shrapnel from the smaller galaxy. They observed three Cepheid variables, which are stars used like standard yardsticks to measure distances. These stars were at such great distances, about 300,000 light-years away, which is more than six times the radius of the disk of the Milky Way galaxy. And they were moving at such unusually high speeds, around 450,000 miles per hour, that they are unlikely to be part of our galaxy. Instead, the likely explanation is that these stars are remnants of that collision a long time ago by a galaxy far, far away. These findings were presented last week at the American Astronomical Society meeting in Florida, and the research paper has been submitted to the Astrophysical Journal. To understand complicated processes, sometimes we use shorthand, like she's got a gene for physics. In reality, though, there are lots of genes as well as environmental influences for these things. But not always. Take a wading bird from Asia called a ruff. Ruffs have three different male types. Most of them are so-called independents. They're big and brightly colored. They defend territories to attract females. 10 to 20% are called satellite females. They're smaller and less brightly colored. A rare bird type, the fodder, mimics females. So by blending in, the fodder can mate without competing with other males. Convenient, huh? Amazingly, these three types are determined by a single site on chromosome 11 with three alternative DNA sequences. Although the site acts like a single gene, it's not. It first showed up in the roughs four million years ago when an error occurred during cell division when a piece of chromosome 11 got cut out and flipped around. This new chromosome 11 could no longer pair up with the original chromosome, and so it went on its merry way for, well, the next four million years. New mutations produce satellites and fodders. Two different groups of evolutionary and molecular geneticists worked out different aspects of this story, which was published in the journal Nature Genetics last week. The findings show that sometimes what seems simple is really not. It may come as no surprise that monkeys, like humans, will take the time and effort 
to punish others who get more than their fair share. In fact, they can act downright spiteful. That's according to a new study conducted by researchers at Yale University. Here's an example. Capuchin monkeys will yank on a rope to collapse a table that is holding a partner's monkey's food, while chimpanzees collapse their partner's table only after a direct personal affront like theft, capuchins punish more often, even in cases where other monkeys simply had more food. The study was published online last week in the journal Evolution and Human Behavior. Polar bear lovers, listen up. On the science calendar tonight at 6 p.m. at Boulder Café Scientifique, it presents a discussion about polar bears and sea ice near Churchill, Manitoba. That's the so-called polar bear capital of the world. The presenter is Dr. Jen Kay. She's an assistant professor of atmospheric and oceanic sciences at the University of Colorado Boulder. Dr. Kay analyzes data from satellites and ground-based stations and runs climate models on supercomputers to understand the processes controlling climate and climate change. She's particularly interested in what we might expect for clouds and ice as the Earth warms. For the past three years, Dr. Kay has volunteered with Polar Bears International. That's the world's leading polar bear research and conservation organization. This volunteer work has brought her into contact with polar bears, polar bear biologists, and it's given her understanding of the interlinked Arctic systems that support the polar bear. So that's at Cafe Sci Boulder tonight, starting with refreshments at 5.30 p.m., and the talk starts at 6. The presenter, Dr. Kay, will speak for about 15-25 minutes, followed by a question-and-answer period, and the event will be held on the second floor of Westlanders Brewing at 1125 Pearl Street in Boulder. For more info and to RSVP, go to cafesciboulder.wordpress.com. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Everything gonna be all right this morning. Today on Science in Action from the BBC, the most iconic of all space scientific instruments, arguably the greatest of the heaven spotters. I've been with Hubble since 1991. The telescope was supposed originally to work something like 10 years, then it became 15, 20, and now it's 25 and still going strong. Not only have we achieved everything that we wanted to achieve, but many, many more things that we couldn't even have imagined that we will achieve. We're talking, of course, about the Hubble Space Telescope. Believe it or not, it's been 25 years this month since its launch, and in that time it's become not just a scientific observatory, but also a household name. There's still nothing quite like a picture, and the stunning ones that Hubble has produced are as beautiful as they are useful. I remember having a poster on my wall of a deep field image showing other galaxies in these beautiful twisted shapes peppered across a dark sky. It was so mind-blowing that it was hard to believe that it was actually real. And, of course, the telescope has had its ups and downs, too. It's like our own orbiting soap opera. Dr. Mario Livio is an astrophysicist at the Space Telescope Science Institute. He's worked with Hubble's data for much of his career. So what are the biggest discoveries that the telescope has contributed to? Scientifically, you know, I would say measuring the current rate of expansion of our universe, which basically determines the age of the universe. We've discovered that not only is our universe expanding, but that that expansion is speeding up. 
Hubble has determined the makeup of the atmospheres of a few extrasolar planets, something that was completely unimagined when Hubble was launched. Hubble told us the rate at which the universe as a whole forms new stars. And Hubble has shown us that at the center of almost every galaxy, there is a supermassive black hole. And what's wonderful is that a lot of these concepts are, are quite difficult ones to grasp and to understand, things that might have passed a lot of us by, but somehow the Hubble Space Telescope has become an ambassador for this sort of science. It's caught the popular imagination, and, and we all want to know what Hubble is discovering. Right. Some people call it the People's Telescope. Every person around the world can participate in the excitement of these new discoveries. You ask any person anywhere to name one telescope, most likely they will say Hubble. So it has really penetrated even into popular culture. So was it a very audacious proposal to build a space telescope back 25 years ago or longer when it was actually proposed? So people started talking about this a long time ago and started talking seriously about this in the 1970s and then Hubble was only launched in 1990. So it took a long time to build. It was also built as a serviceable telescope, which was in itself an incredible concept that, you know, space shuttle astronauts could actually get to Hubble and do servicing on this incredible telescope. And most famously, of course, they initially did a repair to this telescope because it had some problems with its vision when it was launched. But talk us through some of the instruments that it's been updated with over time to keep it doing this cutting-edge science. Yes. You see, almost every time the telescope has been serviced, it more or less reinvented itself. And we have had five servicing missions. So Hubble now finds itself probably with the best complement of instruments it has ever had. So how long could it go on for? Is Hubble going to continue being relevant? At the moment we think that it will for sure go till 2020 but it very well could go beyond that. 2020 is first of all a nice date because the James Webb Space Telescope, the scientific successor of Hubble, will be launched in 2018 and this will allow the two telescopes to overlap for at least two years. But really, there is no reason why Hubble couldn't, in principle, go even for a whole decade from now. There will be no more servicing, at least none is planned. So at one point, the instruments or the telescope will start failing. And at that point, decisions will have to be made for how long to continue to work it. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer and engineer is yours truly, Joel Parker. This week's show was produced by Susan Moran. Additional headline contributions from Beth Bennett. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Muddy Waters. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303 303- Four four seven nine nine one one. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Joel Parker. You are listening to KGNU Boulder, Denver, 88.5 FM, 1390 AM, 
and all around the world on your electronic device at kgnu.org. The time is 9.02 on this Tuesday morning. The weather forecast for today, right now it's about 25 degrees in the Boulder, Denver area. Uh, expected high is 43 degrees, mostly sunny. Tonight, mostly clear with a low of 25 degrees, so about what it's at right now. And through the week, temperatures tomorrow in the high 40s and then dropping steadily to the mid-30s by Saturday with possible chance of snow on Friday. That is your weather report. For your moon report, the moon is a three-day-old waxing crescent. As seen from the Earth, that means the illuminated fraction of the moon's surface is small. It's only about 7%, but it's growing larger. The moon's in the constellation Aquarius. You can see it in the west just after sunset. And now, as always at this time on Tuesday mornings, the wit and wisdom of Alan Watts.